Okay, Fictoplasm episode 81, Damnation Alley by Roger Zelazny. Damnation Alley is the other Zelazny novel that merged the Hawkwind song on 1977's Quark, Strangeness and Charm. And it's copyright 1969, so that puts it a couple of years before Jack of Shadows, and between those two, of course, we have Nine Princes and Amber. And it's remarkable because it might be the origin of the mutant bikers of the atomic wasteland genre. And this is about a decade before Mad Max. And the idea that after they collapse, certain people will band into tribes, you know, identifying themselves as one gang or another and becoming reavers, preying on other sections of society. It's kind of ingrained in the genre now. But anyway, before I get too far ahead, we're going to follow the usual format. So that's going to be a synopsis followed by some remarks about themes and role playing and then a, a bit of further reading. Here we go. So the synopsis, the the bit where we talk about the plot. The setting is Future Earth, and the genre quoted in the Encyclopedia of SF is Ruined Earth. So uh, it's been ravaged by nuclear war and radiation, and the nuclear exchange is called the Three Days, but nearly all of the protagonists we meet have been born after the collapse. Only a few cities still survive, and they identify themselves by pre-collapse names, like the Nation of California, where the story starts, and Boston, where it ends. And as you can imagine, pockets of civilization are few and far between, and the landscape is otherwise irradiated, hazardous, uh, crawling with mutant cockroaches. And the creatures have mutated with uh, giant healer monsters and bats and butterflies, uh, and the weather is crazy, there are dust devils everywhere that will rain stones down on civilization, there's volcanic activity. Aircraft can't fly, they're grounded because the weather currents above above 200 feet kind of preclude any flying. They just, they just tear aircraft to shreds. And there are plagues and other hardships, as you can imagine, of the genre. Any humans travelling the wasteland are the aforementioned bikers and other hard cases like Hell Tanner, who is our point of view character. Um, uh, Hell Tanner is the last of the angels on the west coast and he's a convict and... He's an amazing driver who ran a smuggling operation through the worst of the earth and also notably the survivor of the big raid which destroyed the rest of his gang. Now the nation of California needs him to take a consignment of half a kind antiserum to Boston which is dying of plague. There are other characters which include former gang members, fellow drivers, um, political leaders in California and Boston, evil bikers who just take and take and um, good and kind farmers who offer hospitality freely. Uh, There's the old lover along the way. But the important thing about all of these characters is that they're transient. This is a road trip and, and Tanner picks characters up. They interact with him. You know, he becomes friends with them or they fight or they make love uh, and then they exit the story. So the story runs appropriately like a road trip with Tanner passing through locations and people's lives and then just leaving them behind. Now, in the opening scenes, Hell Tanner is captured by the law in a frenetic car versus bike chase and and offered a pardon for all crimes committed in the nation of California in exchange for taking the antiserum from California to Boston, which is in dire need, and obviously he accepts, and he ends up piloting a massive armoured car with radiation shielding and missiles and flamethrowers and 50 calibre machine guns. Um, He's one of three in the convoy initially, although, and this is a mild spoiler, the other two don't really last long and, and pretty soon he's on his own. But in these early pages, he's been constantly harried by the other two cars. Uh, you know, he's been instructed to sleep sparingly and make use of the pet pills he's been given to battle fatigue so that he can drive longer. And once he's lost his companions, 
it's basically him plus whoever he picks up, driving from um, settlement to settlement, avoiding being stopped on the way by armed locals or monsters, and um, conversing with his companions, which is where the character growth comes into the story. And for a character who appears not to care about anything, Tanner is actually pretty thoughtful and deep. And towards the end of the second act, he stays a while at Potter's farm where he repairs his vehicle and um, his outgoing companion, Greg, uh, is tended to and ultimately left behind. And he forms a friendship with Jerry, the youngest son of the Potters. And he has this pretty remarkable exchange. I'm going to quote this. What did you want to do if it wasn't driving? Tanner stopped and turned his back to the wind, shielding the light he struck until he could get a cigarette going. Then he drew on it twice staring into the smoke, and said, I wanted to be the keeper of the machine. What machine? The machine. The big machine. It's hard to explain. He closed his eyes for a moment, then opened them, and... I had a teacher, he said, back when I was in school, who told us the world was a big machine, that everything acted on everything else, that everything that happened was a function of all this action and interaction. So I started thinking about it, and I got me a picture of this goddamn big machine, all kinds of gears and pistons and chain belts, all sorts of levers and cams and shafts and pulleys and axles, and I figured it really existed someplace, this machine, I mean, and that according to whether it operated smoothly or not, things would go good or bad in the world. Well, I decided that it wasn't running any too well, and it needed somebody to give it a good going over and to keep an eye on it after that, once it was fixed. And I used to sit in class and have daydreams about it, and think about it every night before I fell asleep. I used to think, I'm going to go looking for it some day, and I'm going to find it. Then I'm going to be the keeper of the machine, the guy who oils it and tightens a nut here and there, replaces a warm part, polishes it, adjusts its controls. Then everything would work out all right. I get this real sense that despite the bravado and the way that Tanner has embraced chaos, he really wants to make sense of everything. And this road trip is kind of him doing that, as a road trip should be. But anyway, the third act comes with him leaving Potter's farm for the final stretch, and the Potters warned him of the biker gangs between there and Boston, and the last bit of the story becomes a running battle where he fights off biker gangs, uh, meets a new lover in the form of Cornelia, and, and then loses her, obviously, eventually losing his armoured car, um, doing the final bit of the journey on a stolen Harley with the box of serum lashed to the back. And at this point, Tanner's fatigue and injuries seem to affect him, and he's visited by what may be dreams or delirium. And the first is this passage on page 142. Setting without plot or characters, put a frame around it if you would, and call it what you would, if you would. Chaos, creation, nightmare of the periodic table, or fill in your own. It looks like this. There are thousands of pillars such as those the gallant airman Murmur saw when he first crossed the South Atlantic in a hydroplane and negotiated that region called the Black Hole of the Coast of Africa. Giant pillars, in which rumble the upsurge of sea and land, the tales of tornadoes, as St. Exbury described them, rising as a wall is built. And they sway at first, swelling at their tops, and stand then as immobile as architecture, supporting the arch of the mighty winds that circle the world unceasing, feeding those winds with the harvest of the waters and the lands, limbed, etched, sketched, sometimes charcoal by the lightnings that flicker first, then pulse, like pinwheels or spiders with too many legs, or Chinese characters that trace, chase, rewrite themselves in baleful red, lavish yellow, 
cold blue, blinding white, and occasional green and mystic violet, according to the changing medium through which they move all in their space of the eyeballs twitching, if you're there to see. And may you never how the sky takes up with itself the land and the water, separated since the days of creation, turns them to plasma, pinches them into rivers that race darkly through the dotted areography, disperses them into clouds like nebulae, harasses them from sunset to sunrise and on into the night, drowns stars in their depths, cancels out the moon or covers it any, throttles the sun or dies it, blackens the dome of the world or Easter exit, moving at great heights or lesser ones, shifting, always shifting, juggling a billion particles of solids, liquids, gases through orbits that only such winds may maintain for a time, sometimes shattering or being shattered against tops of mountains, high trees, tall buildings, sometimes bellying to devastate the flatland itself, and deck it with smashings, colour it ruined, ploughed, fertilised, dropping also rains of stone, wood, the dead of the sea and the land, masonry, metal, sand, fire, fabric, glass, coral and water, sometimes too, as it disciplines the earth and the seas, which perhaps abused it too much, too long, by bringing forth those who respected no pacts between the basic elements. This passage feels a lot like Zelaznia suggesting that Tanner is, uh, you know, that Tanner is witnessing this, um, that he, he's, his delirium has given him some sort of objectivity, some holistic view of the world. And he goes through this world building exercise for the benefit of the reader. Then this is more ominous and maybe prophetic passage a few pages later on page 149. Within the theatre agony on the stage of delirium in the heat-lightning landscape of night and dream, there go upon the boards the memories that never were, compounded of that which was and which is not, that which is and that which can never be, informed with fleeting or lingering passions, sexless or sexual, profound or absurd, seldom remembered, sometimes coherent, beautiful, ugly or mundane upon experience, generally inane in reflection, strangely sad or happy, colourfully dark, darkly light, and this is about all that can be said of them, save that spark which ignites them too is unknown. A man in black moves along a broken roadway beneath a dimly glowing sky. I am Father Dearth, a priest out of Albany, he seems to say, making my pilgrimage to the cathedral in Boston, going down to Boston to pray for the salvation of man, over the mountains, down the alley, by a foam-flecked stream, past the blazing mountain and over the swaying bridges, heavily my footfall rings. In this wood beside the road, there I will await the dawn, and there where the dew lies thick. And these two bits really made the story for me, right there at the end, where it could have just evolved into violence. Finally, of course, he gets to Boston. Now, at this point, he's almost completely wrecked. Um... It's really not sure. We're really not sure if he's going to survive. And we have this final, final paragraph. The following spring, on the day of its unveiling in Boston Common, when it was discovered that someone had scrawled obscene words on the statue of Hell Tanner, no one thought to ask the logical candidate why he had done it. And the next day it was too late, because he had cut out without leaving a forwarding address. Several cars were reported stolen that day, and one was never seen again in Boston. So they reveiled the statue, bigger than life, astride a great bronze Harley, and they cleaned him up for the hoped-for posterity. But coming upon the commons, the winds still break about him, and the heavens still throw garbage. The inference, of course, is that, you know, whatever success Hell Tanner had in bringing the serum to Boston and saving lives, 
the world is still knackered. So I want now to make some comments and talk about some of the themes and role-playing opportunities. And the first is the notion of a road trip. So let's talk about picaresque adventures like Jack Vance's Big Planet or Dying Earth and the idea of hex crawling. Those are pretty commonplace. And in that sense, uh, you know, a road trip is a lot like a picaresque adventure as it's presented in Damnation Alley in the way that, that the novel's constructed. You know, you, you go from A to B to C and you meet people along the way and then you leave the people and the places behind. And of course, the difference, though, in a road trip is that you have a start point and an end point and a reason for making the journey. So it's kind of the subgenre of a wider category, I think. And the people on the journey start out with their own ideas and aspirations and you know usually they share them along the way and and this is what should be happening in this kind of fiction i can't say enough good things about um avery elder's ribbon drive the role-playing game about road trips it's a brilliant freeform game which mixes soundtracks and role-playing i think damnation alley does meet the standard of a road trip structure and Tanner certainly changes over the course of the book and opens up some of his most private thoughts as a as previously evidenced by those passages. There is of course the the functional element to the road trip as well which is you know getting to where you're going and there should be some stakes involved that mean you can't just stop or jettison your cargo. And this is a feature of the film Sorcerer from 1977 which is you know the, incidentally the same year that the film Damnation Alley came out. Um Sorcerer involves transporting sweating sticks of dynamite through South America as a as well as a bunch of interesting characters with, you know, complicated backstories and therefore reasons that they are doing such a desperate job. So there's also this idea of a cargo that you can't get away from, that you have an obligation to transport. You know, whether that's material, whether it's something that somebody needs at the end, whether it's a person. Thinking more about role-playing games, I think you could argue that um, Witch the Road to Lindisfarne is something of a, a road trip type game. And certainly the template works for a road movie because it really neatly prompts questions and exposition at various stages, set stages along the way. Uh, and in this case, the cargo is the witch. And I think Ribbon Drive just edges it out for me in terms of a game I would use to run a road trip because it, it has a few um, few interesting elements it works in sort of hitches in the in the journey with changes in music um which is very very elegant and also very very stripped down but also it follows the path that the characters want to go which is what a road trip should do rather than being on a set path um nevertheless both fantastic games um the other rpg i guess i should mention um, is of course uh, the ultraviolet grasslands and i'd like to be able to talk more about this but truth be told um, i've only skimmed it since i got the kickstarter reward but the fear of a black dragon podcast does an episode on it so you should check that out okay tying into the sort of notion of road trips and the second major thing i want to talk about is is kind of actually split into two things and i've, I've in my notes i've lumped it together under the heading fantasy america the first is in general using primary world settings versus secondary world settings by that i mean your primary world setting it in our world and transforming it some way not at all a revelation this has a big advantage that you don't have to create a new map you don't have to explain for example the distance between california and boston because uh, your players will already know that they'll get that so that gives you less of a uh, cognitive overhead there's less stuff that you have to explain um, you can rely on your players just knowing that stuff automatically and then you've got more space to talk about plot 
And that's a big advantage also, I think, if you're running a con game, particularly if you don't know the people and you want to sit down for four hours and go bang straight into it and then have a satisfying session where you don't have to break the flow by trying to actually explain facts about the world. Now, the related to this, there's the novelty of setting a game in a place that everyone is actually familiar with and then transforming it. And I want to point to a really fantastic supplement called The Deluge, published by VSCA Publishing. They also did uh, Diaspora, which is sort of uh, fate traveller, I think that's the best way to put it, but it's it's better than that. Um, and a game that I really like called Hollowpoint, and other games since, I think. The idea there is you, you transform your hometown into a post-apocalyptic landscape, in this case one that's been flooded by endless rain. So that's the reason I think Damnation Alley works really well. It doesn't take any effort to visualise the journey and imagine the places along the way. Now, other post-apocalyptic fiction works in a similar way, for example, um, Station Eleven. Now, related to this is the second component, which is specifically America. You could set Damnation Alley in the UK, but because of the difference in scale, this would be a completely different experience. I was trying to explain this. You know, I, I grew up reading a fair amount of Ray Bradbury as well as you know Tom Sawyer and the Greats of Wrath at school, and and um, so I have maybe a slightly unrealistic image of what America is. You know, being one vast, slowly changing landscape where you could wander for weeks and never see a border. Uh, and it gets more lawless as you head west. And of course, you know, the, the white English speaking settlers have only been there for a few hundred years. So there's this distinct feeling of a lack of control um, and that these settlers are trespassing over ancient powers, you know, which, which of course they are. Um, and of course, this does kind of speak to my ignorance as a young reader. Um, but of course, American fiction or, or Americanized fiction was the predominant form of entertainment. And I wasn't exposed to African or South American or Indian or Australian fiction in the same way. Um, and it may be part of that was the popular cultural elements like John Hughes films and imagining these existing in the same universe as Bradbury. Don't know. Anyway, um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods expresses this idea of American fantasy the most completely, as far as I'm concerned. Um, other fantasy fiction does similar work. You know, I've always felt that Vampire the Masquerade worked as an American fantasy and actually loses something when translated to smaller countries like the UK. Um, you know, mainly because, you know, this idea was put forward in the first edition Vampire, the best edition in my, in my opinion, that um, Kindred lives in the cities and the Lupines controlled the territories outside the cities and that made traveling for the kindred incredibly hazardous which meant that the kindred were by default boxed into the cities where they'd settled they couldn't easily migrate so they were in some ways captive possibly in a gilded cage but all of that makes sense on the scale for america where it doesn't for a small island now i think there's probably arguments that the true comparison is going to be between uh, continental Europe and America as you know two vast spaces with cities between, uh, which is you know also fair enough. Um, but there's something about America being a wild open space that seems to fit this fiction slightly better and presents the right balance of of risk and danger. Now, one of the things that affirmed my feelings about America is this blog post by Andy Bartlett on his blog, Known World, Old World. This is back in August 2015, in which he writes this. I've been busy. I've been away this summer in the USA. The first trip was to Phoenix, the second to South Florida, and I can honestly say that I now get D&D &D just a little bit more. So he goes on to say this about America. 
um, the USA and the Americas in general has a scale about it that is quite unlike that of Europe and Britain especially. I don't just mean its continental vastness, nor the buildings, people, or even the military-industrial prison complex. As I flew into Phoenix, I passed over the canyon-laced desert that resembled to European eyes the landscape of an alien planet. I didn't need to know much history to immediately wonder what the first Europeans had thought as they crossed this landscape with their pack mules laden with equipment, accompanied by their hirelings. And the heat, the heat. It was so hot that I remarked that if it is ever that hot in Wales, then your house is on fire. So this blog post really resonated for me because I'd spent the previous few years travelling regularly to work in the States and I'd been to the States several times before that. And one memorable year in February, I did a tour of supplies from all the way up north in Michigan, where it was sub-zero, biting winds, ice on the ground, down to the Carolinas and Texas, where it was sweltering in February. And yeah, this just this change in weather, uh, this was a profound change that emphasised the the scale of difference and variation in the same country and how far we travelled. So I recommend reading the blog post, which I will, of course, link. Um, but to wrap up the thoughts here, um, I'm not a big RPG map maker, and I don't often think about the scale of things and how long it takes to get from place to place. But when we did the RPG a day thing back in August, um, for the keyword close, I pointed to the Chronicles of Pride episode we'd done. Uh, which is based on an area the size of ancient Wales. So everything's very close together. Uh, and that's suitable for a game where you're going back and forth across the landscape regularly. And I played in Tim Scurriburn game before the pandemic set in, and that's set in the Land of Legend. And that covers an area of similar small dimensions. So, you know, the, the weird woods and the neighbouring baronies were all right on the doorstep. And in that game, the scale was appropriate to the genre you know, like Prydain or uh, Robin of Sherwood. And in this example, we go the opposite way. To express, you know, that this complete desolation um, and the scale of destruction, Zelazny uses the whole of America, and that works with this genre. And you can say the same thing about Mad Max's relationship with Australia, um, or possibly uh, the, the place of the tragic Europe in Hawkmoon, which, you know, Admittedly, it's compartmentalised again into different countries, but it's still treated as a European fantasy rather than located in a specific country. Now, hopefully, Hawkwind will come shortly as well as we do the Eternal Champion rereads. But this sense of scale might be why I've never been fully convinced by Apocalypse World, uh, because it suggests massive global upheaval, you know, in, in terms of the maelstrom. Uh, but it implies small static communities around, around um, hardholders and other principal characters. Now, obviously, you can fix that with a map uh, by talking about sense of scale and the distances. Um, and obviously, you should be taking your RPGs and making them fit the genre that you want to run. Um, the problem I have with Apocalypse World is that, for this reason, it's not completely faithful to the post-apocalyptic genre. Now, I think Urban Shadows fixes this in some ways because Urban Shadows has this focus on a city and therefore it gives you the sense of scale to go with everything else. But Apocalypse World doesn't. Okay, before I move on to further reading, I want to mention one more remark and observation from this book, which ties into Zelazny's other fiction, and that's this big machine that Tanner talks about. That, you know, the thing he's imagined from his childhood, you know, a machine that regulates the world, that needs humans to maintain it. 
the interesting thing, of course, is that this is the very plot of Jack of Shadows, which came some two years later. You know, a big machine at the heart of everything that uh, regulates the Earth. In, in that case, it, it regulates the Earth as a tidally locked world, of course. And much later, though, of course, we have um, the second Amber series, uh, and where Corwin's son Merlin develops this artificial intelligence called the Ghost Wheel. And, and that is this, this massive glowing ring of light, I think, this computer, that is, I think, designed to monitor and possibly regulate and travel through this various shadow Earths that's used by King Random. Um, are they related? Well, who knows? It's just a thought. Anyway, I'm going to go on to uh, further media now. Uh, it's not really a recommendation, first of all, but I should mention 1977's Damnation Alley, the movie. Eight years after the book, uh, only loosely based on the plot, and frankly, the Encyclopedia of SF says it better than I could. In this travesty, the solitary, snarling, hell's angel protagonist of Zelazny's post-Holocaust novel has become four fairly decent Air Force officers. There are almost no survivors of World War III. The officers set out from the western USA to cross the country eastwards in landmobiles, or landmasters, I think, seeking out viable communities. The Holocaust has tilted the Earth's axis, turning the sky into a display of glowing radiation and electrical storms, represented by astonishingly garish and inadequate process work from an obviously low-budget special effects department. The encounter with mutated carnivorous cockroaches stands out in an otherwise wholly laughable and random series of stereotyped adventures with murderous hillbillies, floods, a girl, a feral boy, and several deaths. So that's, that's the Encyclopedia of SF's take. I've seen the movie. I don't recommend paying money to see it or even spending time. It's it's kind of noteworthy for one thing, and that's we have Jean-Michel Vincent acting opposite George Peppard. So I like to imagine this as the apocalyptic future and Airwolf 18 crossover episode where they, um, I don't know, explore the radioactive ruins of John Hughes movies. That's probably a game in that. Okay, on to more general talking about post-apocalyptic fiction you might be interested in. Um, so these are all much more worthwhile than the movie, uh, and they include several versions of transformed Earths. These might have been changed by alien influence, for example, Annihilation, which you know, I admit that I'm quite obsessed with, um, and another example of transforming by an alien influence would be Arcadian Boris Strugatsky's Roadside Picnic and the derivatives of that, which I think includes the Stalker video games and there's a Stalker RPG. Now, this is much more of a local transformation rather than a global transformation, so it's it's specific to a region, but it's still you're overlaying weirdness onto an established map. So lots and lots of opportunities there, and that's probably why it's so successful as a video game. There's other transformed Earths we can mention as well. Um, and they're certainly worthwhile as examples of how you can transform a world and what you can transform it into. Uh, we're picking out some uh, Keith Roberts' Kite World, which is this apocalyptic badlands and a, a human civilization ruled over by the church variant with these kite corps who fly Cody kites to ward off demons from the badlands. Really incredible. Then speaking of kites, uh, there's the movie Slipstream, which does have a special place in my heart and some pretty good performances from Bill Paxton, uh, Bob Peck, Mark Hamill, um, despite being a bit crap. But I do very much like the idea of a, uh, a post-apocalypse where you, you basically have a, a landscape that's one continuous ravine 
and negotiated by microlights and balloons. Then, of course, there's the, the absolutely ridiculous post-apocalypse martial arts of Amazon series Into the Badlands, which I think was cancelled off for its third series. It's It doesn't have a lot of staying power, quite frankly, but the first the first series is, is worth watching. It's a lot of fun. Um, and that idea about your, you know, in the future, you organise into feudal groups who have their own interests and control certain territories. Yeah, that works. Now, of course, these examples deviate from our world and, and they don't have anything recognisable of our world in them, apart from, you know, odd bit, at the low level, there's odd bits of technology and such like that, but there aren't any landmarks. There's not anything that's to say, oh, this is set in a place that is recognisably France or, or America or whatever. And also, notably, they have a, a social order imposed upon them, more so than Damnation Alley. So, I guess it's. I guess you assume they're further into the future, where people remember less of the old world, and also people now exert more political control of their own. But there's no reason you can't like overlay that kind of setting again onto an existing map, just for fun. I'm kind of wondering now if I should give Apocalypse World another go and be a lot more prescriptive with the setting. I've kind of been itching to try the burned over version, so. I might do that and, and see how it works where I say instead of inviting the players to tell me about the world, which I think is, is a really great way of starting the game, it's just, as I said, not quite true to the genre, I should give a bit more as the GM to start with. But I think I'm coming to the end of this episode, so as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, comment on Twitter and, and on the website. Um, thank you very much for listening. The music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chrissabreski.com and until next time take care bye